Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, joining me is Micah Blake McCurdy. Micah, what's going on, man? Not much. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good, man. It's my pleasure. Um, the The original plan was to... I did a podcast with Jonathan Willis yesterday, and it was sort of like a trade deadline preview. And the plan was to just let that marinate for a few days and then kind of do a trade deadline recap at the end of the week. But then a bunch of stuff happened, and the Kevin Shattenkirk trade kind of uh, just... It was a really big deal, and I thought it was a good excuse to uh, fire up the podcast machine and do an emergency podcast with you. No worries, I'm flattered. Uh, so let's uh, let's get right into it. I mean, let's get the Blues' perspective out of the way on this trade because I think it's pretty clear what their motivations were. They saw, you know, they kind of kept their guys uh, last year and went for it and made a nice slow run, but ultimately fell short of their goal and wound up losing guys like David Backus and Troy Brower for nothing, and they didn't want to go through that again. So. They just recouped as many assets as they could and getting a first and a second and whatever else. Like that seems like a pretty good return on a guy that clearly wasn't going to be there a few months from now. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind it from St. Louis's point of view. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit curious. I don't actually know who they're going to give all those minutes to. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't playing him especially high in their lineup. The, he, he's basically been a 20 minute guy for the whole season, pretty much. So, so he's been getting, you know, number four minutes, which I think he, he'll, uh, I think he can do better than that. Although he won't do it in Washington, I'm sure he can console himself with the W's on the board instead of the minutes. Yes, but the, the I don't know who they're going to give those minutes to, and of course the the Blues are likely to make the playoffs this year, mm-hmm. and so so maybe there'll be some some story making there where they'll have some some new fresh blood to attack the playoffs with, and I I'm not. I, I just don't know who it's going to be. Well, I guess you could make the argument that Colin Pareko hasn't shown us that he can't handle 40 minutes a night. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, so they, but Pareko is already playing above Shattenkirk in the depth chart. Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't mind that. I think Pareko is an unusual talent. The maybe, maybe part of the point is you just drop Bomeister down to, to a lower role and, and take relative unknowns and make them much more serious parts of your, of your arsenal. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, and then there's going to be a little domino effect here because they're just barely holding off a team like the Kings, for example, and 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, that's obviously one of the more interesting races to follow right now. And I, I, would you still take the Blues over the Kings in that race? I know. I, I feel like your prediction model still has the Blues making it. Yeah, they they do. The my prediction model likes the Kings very very much. Mm-hmm. The, um, because they they're traditionally weak at at precisely the things that don't normally matter very much. Like the shooting percentage specifically is, is their chief weakness. And it's not, it's not the kind of thing which we've observed stick around for really long stretches. In fact, the Kings are probably, probably the longest sustained low shooting percentage we've seen since the Panthers teams of a handful of years ago. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, there's, there's always, I mean, there's every chance that, that my models are bad and that there are weaknesses there that are, that are being picked up. But I still, I still think I, I like the Kings in that particular race. Part of what makes the Blues so safe, though, is that they face, is that they face such a minor challenge in their own division. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nashville is the only one who's close to them, and there's really no threat from, from Winnipeg or Dallas. That makes, that makes it much easier for them to, to make the playoffs. Right. And I think that you know, you'd also agree that what there's about 20 games or so left and one player, unless he's like a Crosby or a McDavid, I feel like ultimately can only make so much of a difference in that short a period of time anyways. Well, exactly. And it depends, it depends a lot on, on sort of which of the youngsters the blues have internally decided is going to take the chunk of those minutes or if they're going to try and do it by committee. And, and presumably, you know, I, I try not to rely on the wisdom of general managers, you know, just as a thing, but presumably they, they wouldn't have made this trade unless they thought that they had somebody to take those minutes. You know, obviously it's a future looking trade. You know, all those picks are not going to benefit them now. They're going to benefit them later. Um, but they, you know, they, they won't be dealing from a playoff spot like they are now. They won't be completely blind to, to what they're going to do this year. They're not, I and mean, they must have a backup plan of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's unpack this from the eyes of the Washington Capitals though, because I think, it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting little splash they made here. I mean, the past few years, their their big deadline upgrades were guys like Mike Weber and Tim Gleason, and um, I, I, I guess you could say this is a bit of a bit of an upgrade from that. But it's like it's also kind of just a gangster move on on Brian on Brian McClellan's part because we kept hearing about you know all these ties with the Rangers and how Shankirk was probably going to sign there this summer, and we heard that the Penguins were all of a sudden involved in Shankirk sweepstakes, and the Capitals kind of just came out and over and waltzed in and just took him under their noses and they're those two are basically the team's biggest competitors in the east right and i think i think when you look at it from that point of view the trade makes a lot more sense i think you know i mean it's a, it's a selling move from st louis's point of view but i don't think the animating sort of drive for the trade is st louis's desire to sell shattenkirk even mm-hmm. though they were shopping him to to various teams the you know probably heard about those deals that fell through to all those other teams that that fell through based on those extensions i think it's correct to look at this this trade from the point of view of Washington, who are who are loading up to a degree that I mean, much more than any other team. You know, all those other moves that we've seen, you know, Burroughs to Ottawa, the Hansel to Minnesota. You know, they don't exactly count as as like put your division on notice maneuvers. Um, and part of part of it too, of course, is that looking specifically in the division, um, the angle of denying the Penguins. The, who are their, their only really strong competition. Mm-hmm. You know, hockey is hockey. You can still, like, the Islanders could call up Halak and, and, and knock off the Caps in the first round again. You know, the, those old ghosts are lingering the memories of fans mm-hmm. for a reason. Like, yep. those, those kinds of upsets do happen. But, but I think it's correct. You know, you don't plan for upsets. You plan for strength on strength. You plan for, for the, 
for the 80% case, and then you get tripped up every now and again by the 20% case. So I think it makes sense to say, you know, we are serious problem getting out of, I mean, the the major impediment for the Washington Capitals getting all the way to the Stanley Cup is the Pittsburgh Penguins. And so I think if you know that they have, or if you suspect even that they have a specific weakness on defense, that you can stop them or, or mitigate maybe them from fixing you know, that that adds to the upside of the deal, especially when you look at it in the context of a pure rental, which I think is is well, you know until we see otherwise, I think is the right way to look at this deal. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the the player that Shankirk is is fascinating to me because there seems to be this mino- min- misnomer about what he actually is, right? Like people just look at his high point totals and just kind of assume that he's you know your prototypical offensive defenseman who is a liability in his own zone, but Having watched him pretty closely for years now, I just, I honestly don't see it. And I, I don't see anything in the data that necessarily backs that up. I mean, you know, the Blues weren't necessarily using him as a shutdown guy by any means, but I feel like that probably just has more to do with the fact that they rely on a guy like Alex Petrangelo to do that on their team. Like watching Shankirk, there's just nothing about his game that makes me think that he's a weakness on D. I mean, he skates perfectly fine. He's in good position. He has great stick work and knocks pucks away and defends at his own blue line. Like, I just, I don't know. I just, I just don't, other than the fact that it's kind of just like lazy analysis because people just assume that you can't, as a defenseman, have high point totals and also be reliable defensively or have a defensive impact. Other than that, I just don't see where it's coming from, really. Yeah, I don't, I don't see it as well. I mean, I, I've presumably watched less blues hockey than you have, and I, I don't have that coach's eye for, for skills, but but if you just look numerically at what happens when he's on the ice, there's there's nothing to answer the charge. There's no there's no evidence to suggest that he's weak in his own zone. You, know, you look at shot locations, you look at shot volume, you look at all the neutral zone measures we can think of. There's there's really nothing there. The, and even you know you even look at at all the various contextual factors that he certainly was used offensively by the Blues this year. The, he had about five percent more offensive zone shift starts than defensive zone shift starts, which is it's not small, but it's not large either, really. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't draw penalties. The, he draws penalties maybe three or four times less often as he takes them. The, and so there's, you know, it's not like he's sort of totally without flaw somehow. Right. The, those those stats are both from just this year. But but given his deployment, you know, there's there's nothing there that says, you know, oh, he's a weakness or something. I mean, he hasn't been given that sort of shutdown role. And I don't think they'll give that kind of role to him in Washington. In fact, if anything, I think in Washington, they'll use his acquisition as an excuse to be less role-driven, where they'll they'll be able to to just say, look, we're going to roll all of our defenders. They're all great. We're stacked absolutely from top to bottom now on defense. We don't have to optimize exactly who goes out. You know, he can play the first unit power play if we feel like changing things up, or we can just enjoy him on the second unit power play. And then five on five, we don't have to worry about that, and we can optimize our efforts into into other parts of the game. And that that kind of flexibility, to saying you know we can just play whichever defense we want, and we know there are no weaknesses there. You know that even the, just that one area of your team, that's something that hardly any other teams, maybe no other teams, can say this year. Well, I hope you're right because. The optimist in me would like to think that you're right, that they'll just roll their six best guys and just not have any worries about, you know, having liabilities out there. But at the same time, I've watched enough, uh, NHL hockey to know that coaches sometimes think in weird ways. And I feel like, you know, it would be a bad look for them if 
this addition all of a sudden makes Trotz think, hmm, maybe as our sixth defenseman, instead of a guy like Nate Schmidt, we'll just use Brooks Orpik because, you know, he's big and physical and he blocks shots and he's going to penalty kill. And it's just like, I, 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 I can also see that, uh, happening. And I feel like that would be pretty disappointing because if they do go with their top six guys, which are Niskanen, Carlson, Shattenkirk, Alsner, Orlov, and Schmidt, that's as good of a defense combination as there really is in the league. I no, I so I agree with that, and I the only counterpoint to that is that I I don't even see Brooks Orpik as the liability that people think he's. Hmm. The when you look at his stats, the he's also getting, you know, like you you don't see the defensive liability aspect there too. It's part of what I mean about them having having so few weaknesses. I think he's like I don't disagree with you. I think he's probably the weakest of that bunch. Hmm. The and so if you're going to roll, if you're going to say you know these are our top six guys, these are our top six guys, that's fine, but. You know, but then there's weaknesses like Brooks Orpik, and then there's weaknesses, you know, like like a handful of guys in the name of the league. I won't be mean enough to name. <laughs> the, like there, and that's that's sort of part of the point, right? Is that weaknesses are not all created equal, right? And that and that some teams, you know, you say, oh, what what is this team's weaknesses? And you say, well, you know, their sixth defender, their seventh defender is not quite who he might be. Well, that's fine, and it's but it's not necessarily the same problem for that team as it is for some other team who might have the quote unquote same weakness. Yeah. You, know, you got to be quantitative about those things. Yeah, that's fair. And I mean, if, if, you know, they can't really go wrong. And, and I think that this is why spinning it forward, like I know that the whole, is it the caps year is kind of like a running joke online. It's become a meme, but it's, we've, we, you mentioned the earlier playoff defeats and the kind of the ghosts that are hanging around. And I, I understand that people will always be skeptical and it, it'll be the easy joke to make. But like, I mean, first of all, I don't really buy that any of those past playoff failures necessarily have any sort of predictive uh, ability moving forward. But also, I think you can make the argument that this is probably the best Capitals team we've seen. I mean, last year, they were obviously amazing and incredibly successful in the regular season. And, and that 0-9-10 team was, that ran into Halak was also incredibly dominant. But I mean... I just looking at this team, I don't see any of those weaknesses. Whereas with pretty much every other team, you could at least point to one or two things and be like, I could see how this would eventually trip them up. Right. And I, so I, you know, there was a time when I was really against all these, like people bringing up old tropes and old ghosts and old memories. And, uh, you know, it's easy to be a killjoy and say correctly, however correctly you can say, well, you know, there's no statistical validity to all that. And, you know, past performance does not guarantee future success or past failures do not guarantee future failures and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But, but there's something, something intrinsically fun and intrinsically fanish about that, that I really like. On the other hand, the, you know, I agree with your point about weaknesses, but I also think that that even more sort of even more basically that you can't sort of flawless your way to the Stanley cup. You need to actually overpower your way to get there. You need to have bullets in your gun to take a violent metaphor. You really have to have the kinds of, the kinds of resources that will actually not just fail to lose your games, but actually go out and win your games. And, and in terms of, if you look at it that way, also, I think the capitals are, are about as good as I've ever seen them. You know, you look at, at what they can put out on all four lines, on all three pairings, on the penalty kill as well as on, on both of their power play units. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you know, you've got somebody like Holpe, and then of course if Holpe you know is hurt or or has a rough game or two and they want to pull him, then you have to go to Grubauer who is who is playing almost as well. You know, that's yep. like the embarrassment of riches there is is really embarrassing at every position. So it's not just that, you know, that there are that the flaws are more minor, but that the but that the overall positives are really, really strong. 
Yeah. And as you know, the other thing is you just need some good luck. And unfortunately, they haven't had those balances go their way or anything like that. And it could, that, that luck can manifest itself in different ways. I mean, one of those is matchups. And looking ahead, like it's, I don't know, it looks like we're destined for another Penguins Capital second round matchup, which just infuriates me to no end because I'm a strong believer that you should like, like the Capitals should be rewarded for having this dominant season that they're having. And instead they're going to go up against probably like the second best team in the Eastern conference in the second round. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know why we have to keep doing this dance. Well, but it happens every year. Yeah. The two best teams in the West coast uh, played each other in the first round last year. <laughs> yeah. And so there was no, you know, and, and I mean, they had a hell of a series. That was tremendous hockey with incredible drama. And, and by the time the Stanley cup rolled around, you know, people had forgotten all about the Kings because they had been knocked out so long ago. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's life with, you know, I, I'm no supporter of the format. I think, I think Travis's idea about, about letting the people who come, first of all, in the regular season, letting them publicly pick their opponents is, is my, that's my new preferred strategy. Yes. Travel dollars be damned. Mm-hmm. The, the pure drama of it alone is, is too enticing for me. And, and also you would, you know, you would have your reward for, for winning. And I think that, that regular season winning is underappreciated both by fans uh, and by the league generally. And part of why is because, you know, it doesn't matter. Winning a tremendous number of, of regular season games doesn't actually get you any benefit in terms of, of your playoffs. Not enough, not nearly enough. And so I think the way to do it is just to give people bigger incentives to win in the regular season. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in that. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's move on and talk about the other trade, the big trade that happened yesterday. And I, I have to be honest, I selfishly wanted to get you on this podcast just so I could hear your, uh, your thoughts on the Ottawa Senators and the move they made. <laughs> Do you want to hear my anguished screams? Yes. The, <laughs> you, it, I mean, it's, it's a disaster. There's no getting around it. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't see any, you know, I, I, I've looked at it from a handful of different angles. But incidentally, I think I think Burroughs is probably on the ice uh, is probably a fair bit better than he's painted. Mm-hmm. The, um, but he is old, and what remaining value is there will probably will probably vanish reasonably fast. Especially if he continues to play chippily, as I think as I think he has no other way of doing. And you know, and and of course, you know, if you want to make moves that that sacrifice the future in exchange for for today, you know, you, you have to balance those trade-offs and, and I, I, I think they did a terrible job of balancing them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's bizarre on so many levels because, um, I've gotten a pretty up close view of Burroughs here in Vancouver and it's nice. It's actually been nice to see him have a little bit of a revitalization this year where he's stayed healthier and actually contributed and they put him in a nice position to succeed playing with guys like Horvat and Berchi as opposed to playing with more kind of traditional bottom six guys. But like, listen, he's an, basically an average thirty, an average third liner who's turning thirty six years old. And maybe the most bizarre move of all was that the Senators thought it was necessary to lock up his thirty seven and thirty eight year old seasons as well, without ever even seeing necessarily how he looked up close or how he'd perform on this team. And I just think like doubling down like that was just an, an equally bizarre thing. Like just taking outside, like forgetting the prospect that was involved or anything like that. I think that wrinkle to it was also just crazy to me so presumably you know presumably the extension was part and parcel of the deal right uh, just like just like the shattenkirk stuff that didn't go through from the last few weeks so that you know which explains it but doesn't excuse it and you know and if you like this i agree with your assessment of, of that he's essentially a, a you know a, a ordinary to decent third liner mm-hmm. the 
and and the senators could actually use a fair bit of those because their bottom six <laughs> have been atrocious. Right. You know, and so the like, I mean, it's easy to evaluate players in that kind of glib way, like we both just did. But it's but when you're trying to slot guys in, you want to say, well, whose whose ice time does he take? You know, who's where do you see improvement? And so if you put a guy like Burroughs on your fourth line, then the improvement is enormous, especially in Ottawa, where the fourth line is is terrible. Um, and 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 if you look at the extension as the price that you pay in the future in order for results now, you know, then then it still feels like an overpayment, but you can get yourself in the mindset of why the senators made the deal the way that they did. The the I mean they they don't have very strong chances ever because of the way that they don't spend. So when they have faint chances, they they don't really have any alternative if they want to have any chance at all of, of winning a Stanley Cup. They don't have any much choice but to load up such as they can on the chances such as they have them. Right. So so from that point of view, I see it. You know, they, They're not operating in the weight class as the Capitals, and so they're not going to make moves that, that make sense in the same in the same level. And by weight class, I mean monetary weight class. So they don't, they don't have those options, you know, but, but within the sort of envelope that they operate in, this is the kind of move that you can get. The other hand, of course, is that I, I just personally, and this sort of taps into all of my personal biases, was extremely fond of Dallin of the prospect that they gave up. Mm. The, you know, smallish Swedish scores a lot. You know, that's, that's sort of, yeah, you know, if I have a type for hockey fanishness, that would be it. Yeah. But the, you know, you try to separate those sort of fan things from from evaluation things. It's also extremely difficult, and prospect evaluation is a weakness of mine. And the, you know, the graveyards are filled with the bodies of of irreplaceable men, and and hockey trades are absolutely littered lousy with amazing prospects who are sure to turn out. Yeah. You know, you can't let yourself get trapped that way. Well, I mean, you're watching uh, Curtis Lazar right now, and I feel like if you read some of the articles about him a few years ago, even it's like, and then you watch the player today and how he's producing, it's uh, there's a, a massive difference between those two. But I think that the ele- like the elephant in the room, you're you're right in terms of like of, I think a, few, a week ago or maybe even more recently than that, we got this report that came out that um, Eugene Melnick had sort of made it the club's mandate to try and make the playoffs this season and make go for a run and it's like i guess that's where this move's coming from but it's just like it's tough to wrap your head around the fact that beyond maybe just getting a few extra bucks from a playoff home playoff game or two or maybe even potentially winning a playoff round like i just don't see in terms of the the big picture what this move does in terms of moving the needle for the senators like i if you look at the team they were before this trade and the team they are after it's a pretty comparable thing like i just don't see that it being that big of a difference i i think there's a you know i'm not sure that the difference is big but i think it's an improvement i think I think Burroughs, you know, if he takes Kelly's minutes, for instance, and and also you know permits extra minutes to flow to the bottom six that haven't been coming there, I think there's a there's a perceptible improvement there. I'm not quite sure how high, how large it is numerically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you know, and it's kind of sad and humbling in a way, but I think if you want to look at Senators' moves, you know, you just take all of the same logic that you apply to any other move in the league and just scale it all down a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, there just because of the money that they operate. And, you know, you're talking about a two and a half million dollar guy. You know, that's, that's what's flashing out is at the deadline for the senators. Okay. But so let's include the, the Dolan component to this now and say that, you know, just purely from a value perspective, it seems like a bizarre move. And I think that, you know, let's say Pierre Dorian for a second viewed this trade and thought, you know what, 
this is a smart idea. We should do it. What were the other people in his staff that are surrounding him saying at the time? Like, were they also in favor of it? Were they scared to say something because they don't have that type of working relationship and maybe they're just there to be yes, man? Like, I just don't understand how a move like this passes through the eyes of so many people and everyone just okays it. Like, it seems like, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but just how much value there'd be for teams to hire people for a relatively measly sum of money to just basically be at ready for when something like this gets kind of brought up to their attention, just be the voice of reason and just be like, no, I think you need to put your phone down, log off and go for a walk. And uh, I, I think you'd go a long way and save a lot of, a lot of money and a lot of heartbreak. Well, if, I mean, the joke of course is that if you were trusted to, to make override calls like that, you, you could be put to use doing a great deal more than just, just the occasional, you know, son, I think it's time to stop posting kind of, kind of role. <laughs> right. You know, it's, 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 a, you know, it makes for a cute soundbite, but, but it's not like it's sort of the eminence behind the throne job description, which hasn't been available since the revolution. So I don't like, I don't As for the actual makeup of the organization. I don't know what little I know about, about them suggests that they have a small front office, perhaps smaller than, than they should. Every, every NHL team that I've ever run across has a smaller front office than I think they ought to, except possibly the Maple Leafs, you know, although that's again, not my area of expertise. So I, I expect that probably the way the decisions were made rests on the shoulders, the mental shoulders of considerably fewer people than you might think. And, and so the number of people to be convinced, the number of people who would have to say yes to a mistake is, is quite small. Yeah. I mean, you watch some of these like behind the scenes looks. I mean, the, the best example is the, the, that Bruins video that came out when they traded away Tyler Sagan. And it's basically just like a small room of guys that are all just agreeing on everything. And I think that's the way that a lot of these guys would want it to be. Like, you don't want to have this distending opinion and have this, you know, this, this kind of confusion in place. Like I, I, for myself personally, I think that every team should have a number of different people involved because asking these types of questions is something that every team should be doing rather than kind of just being like, Oh, I kind of like this player. Yeah. Let's just do it and not worry about it like it seems like given how much is at the line on the line and how much money is involved there should be uh much more back and forth happening than there really are i feel like well there's there's a natural instinct towards towards team formation especially when you're running a team sport you know the 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 number one virtue that you that you drill into your players is being on the same team we're all together we all work for one another and that that mentality moves very easily into a, we all think the way, the same way about hockey. We all, we all see the same virtues and we all hate the same vices. The, and that, you know, the line between teamwork and groupthink, I think is really small mm-hmm. mentally. And so, yeah, well, like you said, I think you have to put policy in place to deliberately combat it. And that's extremely difficult. And that kind of organizational capacity you know, most, most businesses and people love to talk about hockey teams as businesses that are obviously social institutions, much more important than just businesses. But mm-hmm. even as businesses, that's an extremely difficult problem to solve where you get, you, know, you get management C-suites where people all agree with one another and that's why they got those positions. And then you find that that dissenting positions are almost impossible to take and you get sort of figurehead, almost call like aspects that, that develop. I mean, that's just natural human organization those are problems that people in management consulting have been working, struggling with forever. I don't think we're ever going to say, oh, you know, we're solved that. Now we're free of that. It's not like a data science problem that you can just say, look, we know the methods here just fall in line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from the Canucks perspective, 
Jim Benning made a smart, calculated move, and I honestly, <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what to believe in anymore. I mean, listen, he got a a lot of flack, and a lot of it was from from myself included last year uh, at the deadline, where he kind of just sat on his hands and did nothing. And uh, you got to give credit where it's due now, because this is the type of really smart gamble that uh, people have been clamoring for. Where you know, you look at Dalen, he's nineteen, uh, he's dominating in the league he's playing at right now is nearly a point a game playing in, in, a, in a pro Swedish league and he looked fantastic in the up close viewings we got of him at the world juniors back in December and there's a lot to like here and he sort of just provides the type of upside that I think that we haven't seen the Canucks really go for in their prospects I know you're not you're not a big prospects guy but it just like it, it this is a very like very different move from what we've seen Jim Benning do in the past and I think that's a, a positive change for the Canucks yeah I, I like it from the Canucks point of view. Um, the you know they they get the problem though that that everybody who's relying on pro, on prospects does is that you, know, you now you have to sell hope for the future based on somebody that all you get about is a handful of YouTube clips mm-hmm. and and that's you know that's great that's I mean that's a necessary part of of the stage of the franchise that that Benning is in which he you know and this is the first this is the first concrete action out of Vancouver that makes me feel like they recognize sort of the place in their business cycle where they are. They, they, it's been clear for a while, you know, possibly like everybody has their own taste in rebuilds. You know, there's, there's always that leading edge of the fan base that says tear it down maybe a year or two before you should. The, and there's also equally the people who say, Oh no, 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 we get to get a, you know, we still have the scenes. We got to go for it one more time, you know, like two years after they're clearly, clearly past it. So that like that it's, it's, those people, like that distribution of, of voices is interesting and where the, the people in charge actually fall on that distribution is especially interesting. So this is the first sign I've seen out of, out of Vancouver that the, that the organization is, is actually on the right page about not just the move itself, but about making the right kinds of moves. So, you know, now they just have to hope he pans out. Yes. And if not, they can just sort of be, try to be quiet about it. Yeah, but I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's only like a few YouTube clips, but honestly, there has been so little for Canucks fans to get excited about in the past few years that uh, even even a couple of grainy YouTube clips will probably go a long way towards getting people excited about the future. Like, I, I think that this idea that Canucks fans wouldn't support a rebuild has always been so flawed because you look right now and as this team has been trying to quote unquote compete the past two years and failing miserably at it, like no one's going to the games. People are watching their games on TV way less frequently. Like merchandise sales are down. Like it just like, it's, it's pretty clear that fans want something different. So I think that this is like the first step in what a, a series of steps that need to happen, but at least, you know, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And you'll see, you'll see the, I mean, the trade itself is one thing, but you'll see exactly how far the Canucks organization may want to take that point of view by whether or not they they suddenly start some sort of blitz around Dolan mm-hmm. or or around similar prospects of you know similarly aged prospects who are going to come into the team at around the same time. If the, if you get that kind of of buzz from the team, then you'll know for sure that the that the corner has been turned organizationally, and not just you know oh we see a convenient trade, we're just going to do it even though it's not part of the master plan. Yeah. Uh, one final point. 
point on this trade. Um, I know that you know a lot of people are going to be like, "Oh, it's 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 too early to evaluate this trade. We just don't know anything about John, uh, about about, about Dolan. We don't know what he's going to turn into. Blah blah blah. This and that. And we hear that often when picks or prospects are traded, and there is some uncertainty in it, of course. But I know that uh, you had a pretty great Twitter rant the other day about when is the right time to evaluate trades. So I just kind of want to give you a, a platform here to to, to, to talk about that. <laughs> well, the the you know the point is that every every trade is always about the future it's an incredibly banal thing to say but it's still true mm-hmm. and and so the you know you can you can tell interesting stories about trades long after they happen and and trades that turned out in extremely weird ways make for incredible stories and journalists especially but anybody who can tell those stories in a way that's interesting that are 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 extremely valuable the but if you're talking about judging or evaluating a trade, you know, normally people want to say, was the trade wise? That's a specific judgment that I think is, is a, a judgment not of the trade kind of as a, as a non-living entity, but a judgment about the decisions of the people who made the trade. Did they choose wisely? So you're judging the judges, which is much more interesting. And when you look at that, I don't think, I don't think there's any justification for looking at anything that you didn't know when you made the trade. You know, some of those rumors are really fascinating. We're like, oh, it turns out actually that, you know, that Jim Benning knew something about Alex Burroughs that nobody else did or that the public didn't know. You know, that's, you know, that might change your opinion about some trade after when you made. So actually they, they dealt very, very cleverly when they looked really stupid and they just wore the public flag. You know, you can, there are angles of that that come out of trades all the time. Right. And, and so for instance, that like you're talking about that Sagan video that came out, I, I'm sure that there were some people who probably thought, Oh, you know, now we'll be vindicated in the eyes of the public because they'll see the way we made, we made our decisions. <laughs> right. You know, and, and maybe some people did think yeah. that, you know, and other people would have said, well, you know, now you not only did you make a bad choice, you made it for bad reasons. Yes. That's, that's just the, that's just what you wear when you do stuff and you want to, you know, you want to engage with the public and release your work for public opinion. Right. But if you but if you want to evaluate a trade, I think you have to say is is the person who or persons who made the trade were they using correct ideas about the probabilities they were dealing with? You know, so Darwin is a prospect, and so prospects are all about probability. Just what is he going to turn into? But even Burroughs, who's a well-known commodity, you know, his antics are well documented. His honest stats go back for years. Is is still a question about prediction, right? All of the the things that are swirling about Burroughs are all you know, in on an on-eye sense, are all about the future. You know, he's 35. Will he decline? I mean, obviously he'll decline. Will he decline quickly or will he decline slowly? How quickly? Right. How much? How, you know, what's the what's the floor there? So, but the questions are still the same questions as you ask about Dolan. What are we going to get in the next however many years? And that, you know, those estimates are the ones that are being made now by the people making the decisions now. And when you talk about judging a trade, you know, that's what you want to do. So you have to be a little bit careful, though, you know, if you like, Burroughs could easily have two more productive years, roughly the level that he's at now. That we see that from thirty-five-year-olds all the time. And then some people will say, "Oh, well, that that shows clearly that you know that they could tell that he had lots of life left in him." Or he could be horrific in a couple of years, and people would say, "Well, he was thirty-five, and we know what people are like at thirty-five. Now, these points of view are equally insufferable. There has to be some sort of you, know, you can't you can't roll a dice and then say, "Well, we knew it was going to come up that way the whole time." Right. But, this is the sort of thing which makes me start to, you know, yeah. rant and rave and use big words on Twitter. And there's and there's a the very big possibility that Burroughs very well could have a couple productive seasons here for the Senators, and we still won't have like Dolan will still be kind of this like 
dream or this idea of playing in Sweden. And then all of a sudden, Burroughs is done playing for the Senators and Dahlin comes over and, you know, either pans out or doesn't. Like, it's like, obviously, you need to, you're allowed to readjust your thoughts on a trade and how you feel about it in hindsight. But when you're evaluating, especially GMs on these trades or teams that are making these trades, like you do, as you said, have to evaluate them based on what they knew at the time and whether it was a smart decision to pull the trigger on that trade, I feel like. Yeah, if you want to, like, trades go bad all the time. And if you want to crow in public about how it pleases you that some trade went badly for a team that you hate, you know, go to town. <laughs> but but that's, like, that those those sorts of, like, you know, I'm going to get my knives in stuff, I, I don't mind, even if it's petty. The, it's it, just one way of being a fan, and I've I've definitely done that myself at times. But, the, but then there's there's sort of another angle you... You know, I have this weird, this weird double thing where I, you know, I work professionally in hockey. All of my income comes from hockey. And so, so on the one hand, I, I sort of have a hat that I wear, which is my, you know, Dr. McCurdy fancy analyst hat where you, where I look scrupulously at data. And then there's the, you know, the drinking beer and yelling at the TV when my team scores hat (laughs) and you, but, and to a lesser degree, you do the same thing all the time when you're, even which is when you're talking hockey with your friends, sometimes you're, you're happy because your team won other teams, you delight in the sadness of your enemies. And other times you try to look dispassionately at the people who made decisions, you know, without, without letting, or well, hopefully without letting too much of your, of your obvious biases about fan bases, color those decision making things it's a problem it's not easy but you, you kind of have to try anyway right yeah i completely agree um okay, what, one final thing before we get out of here uh let's talk about the brian boyle to the leafs trade because i feel like I, i'm sure we have a bunch of Leafs fans who have been listening up until this point just waiting for us to talk about it and i i, I, I don't know do you have any like big takeaways like i think it's a perfectly reasonable trade for both teams and i, I I'm, I'm cool with just leaving it at that but i don't know do you, do you, do you see any sort of interesting nuggets here that i'm not that aren't meeting the eye at first glance uh i think i think it's pretty it's pretty ordinary all yeah. up i think it's you know it's fine for at least fans to make a big deal about the only trade that seriously affects the team the but i don't i don't think it makes a great deal of difference i don't think there are any real mistakes made um i think boyle is a capable player who will play in a spot where he'll be useful mm-hmm. and i don't think they gave up too much you know it's a like can't they can't all be incredibly dramatic it's it's considerably more minor even than the Burroughs trade, which I don't consider to be an especially major trade. You know, one prospect for one bottom sixer. Yes. It, you know, it doesn't quite, it's, I think it's correct to start with Shattenkirk and then proceed to Burroughs and then finish <laughs> up with Boyle. Yes. But, it's, but I don't, I don't mind it actually. I don't mind it for Tampa, you know, who, who ought to sell and get what they can. And I don't mind it for the Leafs who, you know, who have a problem at fourth line center. And I think they just fixed it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Yeah, the Ben Smith, Freddie Goche uh, combination wasn't doing anything for them, and and Boyle's a nice upgrade, and he seems like a, a guy Mike Babcock's really gonna like, and they didn't. Pay I approve a, of mustaches too. Yes, yeah, great mustache, and they had another second round pick, so you know it's they're not completely uh, milking themselves dry here. So it, it seems like a it's a very reasonable trade. So let's just uh, let's leave. Tidy it bit that. of business. Yes, tidy bit of business. Uh, Micah, where can people follow your work online? So the easy place to find me is on Twitter. So I'm at ineffective math. I still never got that math job. I talk about mm. the ineffective math with two ends. Uh, you can also find some of my data viz at hockeyviz.com. But, uh, but if you want to yell at me and people do these days, Twitter is the place. Yes. Uh, well, thanks for, thanks for answering the bat signal on such short notice, man. That was uh, a lot of fun. And uh, No worries. Thanks for having me. Yes. And I look forward to uh, seeing you at the Vancouver Hockey Analytics Conference. And hopefully we'll be able to do an in-person podcast at that time. 
Excellent. See you then. All right. Chat soon, man. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. <laughs>